actually, it is so fun learning together. I don't know. I always thought I wanted to help patients and I like science. And the truth is, I just actually really like my people. channel your enthusiasm i think that's where we settled yeah yeah josh this was your idea i, I guess it was josh can you defend this idea uh, what, what, why what, what does this mean what does channel this enthusiasm channel your enthusiasm i think it was a couple of things i think it was a play on the idea of channels because there's a lot of ion channels that we're going to get to not today but in the future um i also think that we're all enthusiastic about our love for not just the book but for real physiology uh, and that we're trying to be hip and cool with the kids. And so we were trying to make a pop culture reference that people would understand. Do the kids watch Curb Your Enthusiasm? <laughs> <laughs> and then there's a subtitle, right? So it's uh, it's Channel Your Enthusiasm, colon, Burton Rose Book Club and Audio Podcast. Do we have a better do we have a better subtitle than that? I, I like the Burton Rose Cocktail Club. That was actually... I like, like that. that too. I missed that. Burton Rose Cocktail Club, excellent. Do we need uh, Do we need to have anything like nephrology in it so that some, if someone's ever searching because they're never going to find it otherwise? We could have a sub subtitle. <laughs> it could be "Channel Your Enthusiasm: The Burton Rose Cocktail Hour, a Nephrology Physiology Podcast." And if you're not asleep by the end of that, you're our target audience. I was going to say, Joel, you're the professional who does this for a living. Is- Trust me, <laughs> if this is what I did for my living, my kids would not be going to college. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay. you know, there's like, you know, we've got a pun in the title, then we've got somebody that only a third of the nephrologists will know, and then, you know, I kind of like the, I kind of like what you just did. Do you think only a third of nephrologists know Burton Rose? Melanie's well, not well, even let, let me say this. Well, you call it the Bud Rose. They're not going to know. I mean, half, I'd say. No, you have to understand. He's an icon to us, but I don't, you know. I, I, I agree with you, Roger. don't know who Homer Smith is, and I and I drive it in, you know. I try to tell them, and I tell them they have to read this book. And How many fellows do you have every year, Roger? We have six, three a year, so two, two three-year classes. Okay, and you give this advice to every one of them to read this book, and how many do you think read it? Probably a third. Two a year. Probably. Two every two years. That's a third. I mean, you know, I mean, one of the three a year, probably. JC, you run a fellowship program, right? Yeah. How many fellows do you have? Three and three as well. You guys have a program. You read it. Yeah, as it's part mandatory. Of the we have every Friday we go through the book chapter by chapter, and what you do a chapter a week. Uh, certain chapters I divide it in two or three, depending on the length, but mm-hmm. most of the time it's one chapter per week. Yeah. So everybody reads it coming every out. Every other week. Every other week. Yeah. So. Yeah, so, but going back to my fellow time, I can remember in my class at Emory, we were like eight and nine fellows per class. I'm pretty sure that only half knew about Martin I don't think Rose. there's eight or nine fellows that exist now in nephrology. You had eight or nine in your class. Per year, yeah, Emory. Oh my God. Now they have five only. Mm-hmm. But Amy, you just finished at Sinai? Yeah, I don't think anyone reads it. <laughs> I don't think anybody reads a book, actually. I was so. going to say, I don't know that anybody reads. Yeah. But they, that yeah. they're reading it, they just don't know. But because they're reading up to date and, and Bud right. folded in all of these sections into up to date when he got going. So mm-hmm. they're reading it, they just don't know they are. But mostly up to date, they're they're going there to read about polycystic kidney disease or something. They're not going there to read about salt and water or acid, you know, the basics, which is what this, which is really the goal of this. 
Yet you're very goal oriented, right? Mm-hmm. You're just you're reaching for something that's very true. specific. You're not like I want to understand and, this and you're, better. Yes, you're right. And, and actually, that's right. You're just in the wrong. You used mood. to be yeah. able to look up just chapter six, and it would pop up, but that's no more. Ted must have gotten rid of it. We're doing now what JC's doing. We're going at a slower pace. We're doing it one a month, uh, and we just started. In fact, today we did chapter one, uh, and we're seeing how we're going to try to. I'm going to try to parallel it with the development of this podcast, so I kind of get uh, two birds, one stone type of thing. I'm really going to look into that. I think that's a fantastic idea. I don't know if I can get enough help, but I, I think that's that's just admirable. That's just great, guys. Can we? Why don't we go around the horn and introduce ourselves and kind of this is the whole this is the whole crew. I'm glad that everybody showed up. So I'm going to do it in the order that the tiles are on my screen. So I'm going to start with Roger. Hi, Roger Rodby. I'm at Rush University Medical Center and a program director since 2000. You've been program director since 2000. Yeah. Entire nephrology careers have started and ended since 2000. I know. I know. I've had a fellow. I have some fellows that have retired. Oh my god. Wealthy too. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you also do the board review course. Yeah, I do the board review course, and I'm quite involved with ASN communities. So, uh, Amy, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Amy Yao. I just finished my nephrology fellowship at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. I am going to be starting at the University of Arizona in Tucson, Arizona. Before this, I was actually in the military, so I did my residency training and I worked as a hospitalist for the Army. And I have a two-month-old baby, and that's about it. Outstanding. Outstanding. And you are one of the principal faculty advisors for the Skeleton Key Group. Yes, that's true. Yeah, that's been really fun to do, actually. It's been a, it's been really exciting to watch that take off. JC? Juan Carlos Velez, a nephrologist at Auctioner Medical Center in New Orleans. I am the chair of the department there, involved in the fellowship as well, running a renal physiology course as part of the curriculum. Trained at Emory in Atlanta. That's it. Happy to be here. Excellent. Excellent. Josh? Sure. So I'm Josh Waitsman. I'm a nephrology research fellow at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center here in Boston. I did my early training at Northwestern University in Chicago, where I did my MD-PhD residency and the first two years of fellowship before coming out here to BIDMC. Um, I work in Martin Pollock's lab here working on structural biology and biochemistry. So still a fellow. Still a fellow. Boards in three months. I'm going to pay for that thing that Roger's talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Very self-contained loop here. Leticia? Uh, Hi, everyone. My name is Leticia Rolon. I'm I'm at UCSF. I've been here. Maybe you guys have heard this. UCSF stands for You Can Stay Forever. And and it's basically like I hear the disdain like, oh, you're an inbred. I'm like, yes, unfortunately. But I did med school at UCLA and then Mike immigrated all the way up to Northern California for a residency fellowship. And I joined the faculty here in 2016. So I don't know when I'll stop being junior faculty. Part of what I do is I teach the renal curriculum to the first year medical students. And I also then teach them a refresher of foundational sciences during their core clerkships uh, when they're in their third year, which is actually here at 18 months. It's very complicated. I feel extremely honored to be part of this group. Oh, awesome. Leticia, are you also a California native? Have you truly been California your whole life? Yes. Did you grow up in LA? Not in LA, in a small town right in the middle of LA in San Francisco. I don't know if any of you are familiar with California, but Santa Barbara, Central Coast area. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, right. Just north of Santa Barbara. My parents, well, now they live on a horse ranch. It's really nice. It's so beautiful. That's the goal is to retire to a horse ranch. That's what Rogers <laughs> Fellows have been doing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Melanie? Uh, Melanie Honig, and I uh, have all this new gear, so I'm so excited. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also at Beth Israel Deaconess, and I used to teach the first year renal physiology component, and I taught the second year pathophys course. And now that we have our new curriculum, I run that course and it's renal GI and endocrine. But the name is awesome. Homeostasis 2. That's awesome, <laughs> right? Just let's call it what it is. It's homeostasis. I love that. And I fought hard to be paired with endocrine because the guy who I was working with who did homeostasis 1, he wanted me to be paired with him, I think, or GI because of our channels, but I fought to get endocrine also. Yay. If I could share one little tidbit is that, so our division chief at UCSF trained with Melanie and he introduced it. Well, I had met her at KidneyCon as well. And um, and it was just really interesting at UCSF. This is how we teach renal also with endocrine and GI. Okay. That's funny. See, I like that you guys are fighting over togetherness. Yeah. You're like, no, we all belong together because... It is true. And actually, it is so fun learning together. I don't know. I always thought I wanted to help patients and I like science. And the truth is, I just actually really like my people. So... (laughs) Yeah. And and then with the GI folks, we get to call the colon a big dumb nephron. And it's... (laughs) I don't know when that will not be accepted anymore, but for now, we're still getting laughs. <laughs> it's fun good. doing like it to it. their face. It's fun yes. doing it behind their backs. Mm-hmm. There's no place where <laughs> that's, that's not appropriate. It. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, it's never wrong. And, and, and before we move on, please introduce yourself, Anna. I'm Anna. I run nothing. Um, I'm a, <laughs> I, don't, I don't run anything. Um, I am a second, just started my second year of fellowship at IU. I was here for residency. Before that, I was here for medical school. Before that, I was here for undergrad. So I grew up near Chicago and then moved to Indianapolis and I've been here ever since. Wait, how old were you when you moved to Indianapolis? Were you a kid when you moved I to Indianapolis? Eight, or was I was that 17. You know, where did you grow up? I grew up actually in Laporte. So I was like between oh, South, okay. yeah, no, not like that close. Um, I was in Indiana, but I was kind of between South Bend and Chicago and, and I was a first generation college student. I didn't know anything. So I went to the first place that offered me a scholarship and I loved it here. So I have learned a ton and I really like the people I work with. I've gotten involved with online medical education this year with the nephrology social media internship and uh, been really involved in that or involved in that. And then I'm um, editing the Renal Fellow Network this year also. Um, so it's been a really exciting year for me. I've right. always the been Reno interested Fellow in Fellow Network is a big thing. What do you mean I don't run anything? Well, I don't run <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's Well, right. that's I'm, a big I'm interested in education. I really like, I'm staying in academics once I'm done. And so I really think that it's exciting. It's been, it's been a really great way for me to find like a sense of unity Outside of, you know, I think that feeling sort of like an outsider when you're starting in in a field is really probably most people feel that way. So it's been really wonderful. It's been a really wonderful and exciting year for me. So I'm a huge Star Trek fan and I love that monologue that Shatner does at the beginning of every episode of the original series. So I I put together one. Why are we doing a podcast for a 20-year-old book? Burton Rose is a classic of nephrology literature 
not because it has all the latest twists and facts, because it lays out the function of the kidney and how that function translates in an elegant and simplified manner so that the reader can build a model of how the kidney works and understand the why behind all the electrolyte pathologies we see on a daily basis. Nephrology is different from ID or rheumatology because once you have a functioning model of how the kidney works, electrolytes just make sense. Generations of nephrologists have used Burton Rose Pros as the guide to build this model. You don't need to know Burton Rose to be a nephrologist, but to be an excellent nephrologist, to be a confident and inspirational teacher, we think it is essential. We feel there is a material difference between nephrologists who have really internalized the lessons and models of Burton Rose rather than have never read it or read it in a perfunctory manner. We feel the field is better when there is more of the former rather than the latter. We think that the best way to read the book is as a group project, and many nephrology fellowships have a Burton Rose book club. But that is not all fellowships, and we're going to try to make this classic of nephrology physiology more available and approachable through the medium of a podcast. And we're starting, today we're starting the um, the first chapter. So hello and welcome to chapter one. Uh, it starts out with, uh, the, st- the chapter starts out with a summary of the kidney functions. He divides the kidneys functions into three groups. Maintenance of extracellular environment, hormone secretion, and uh, and then uh, and then the hot, the last category miscellaneous, <laughs> right? So I was looking at that hormone rec- secretion, and I kind of figured in twenty years we probably would have found another hormone. I could come up with only one. The only thing I could come up with was clotho. Is there anything else that you think was missing from that list? Here, here's here's his list. He has uh, hormones that are secreted by the kidney: renin, angiotensin two prostaglandin E, nitric oxide, endothelin, bradykinin, ipoidin alpha, I don't know if it was alpha, ipoidin, and 125-dihydroxyvitamin D. What does bradykinin do? I've, that's the only one I was like, I don't know what that one does. It causes a cough. It makes you cough. Yeah. That's yeah. That's the only thing yeah. I know about it. I only know that, that it, and my guess is that God didn't create bradykinin to cause a cough with lisinopril. Yeah. Bradykinin has been neglected historically, right? It's a vasodilator. It has a couple of different receptors, B1 and B2. It affects uh, endothelial permeability. But you're right. When we think about clinical applicability, who talks about bradykinin unless there's somebody no, there's took no an bradykinin in the ICU? <laughs> they are. There's actually uh, some molecules that it gets with some inherited allergy disorders, uh, take some bradykinin uh, compounds, yeah, anti-bradykinin compounds. As a vasodilator, do we know if it uh, affects the afferent or efferent arterial? Uh, I'm sure we do, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, the uh, it probably affects both. Well, I don't think right? it's selective. Yeah, I think it does both because it, it the yeah. endothelial the endothelium itself is where it um, has the mechanism of action. So I think it's probably both. Is this a counter regulatory yeah. hormone to endothelin? Is that kind of the the thought, or am I uh, making that up? Probably with angiotensin, since uh, you know they are linked with the same uh, converting enzyme. So we can see it that way. Uh, Radikinin being a vasodilator, angiotensin two being a vasoconstrictor. Because there are certain peptides from both families that could be counteractive as well. So the only thing I could come up with that wasn't on the list was uh, was clotho, right? Soluble clotho is secreted by the kidney somewhere, somewhere I presume, and kind of has hormonal activity. According according to Wikipedia, it's a hormone. (laughs) That's as deep as my research went. Are we? I couldn't come up. Are you going to 
assign homework? Like, are we going to have? I was going to say, why don't you guys that- read about this? Yeah, are, tell us well, next I read time. the whole chapter twice. Okay, <laughs> but I'm just aren't we going to talk about the hormones when we get to the relevant yeah. sections? We'll, not... we'll have an opportunity to okay. do that. Okay, maybe we could make sure that we can speak clearly about a couple yeah, of these I things. Did. Great. Yeah, here's really something I didn't know. Diuretic. It says acute infusion of bradykinin in the kidneys causes polyuria by inhibiting vasopressin activity in the collecting tubules. Oh. That's that's nothing what we predicted. Bradykinin causes DI. Yeah. Okay. Go figure, right? And then the miscellaneous it causes catabolism of protein and gluconeogenesis. And that gluconeogenesis, I think that comes up a lot. I think when we have um, patients with advanced kidney failure, I see hypoglycemia in these patients all the time. I always focus on, oh, they don't catabolize insulin, so their insulin's sticking around a long time. But I don't think about, oh, they also lost, you know, a kilogram of gluconeogenic organ. I see it all yeah. the time too. I think it's an excellent. Oh, point. me too. Yeah. yeah, and the and the wide fluctuations, like the really the hypoglycemia, and then the spikes after. So. Um, After dialysis, right? When you remove the insulin during dialysis. So you see hyperglycemia after dialysis? Yes. I like that. I've not looked for that. Mm -hmm. The catabolism is interesting too because, you know, we've all seen our nephrotic syndrome patients with uh, big time protein reabsorption droplets in the proximal tubule. And those unfortunately don't always go back to the blood. A lot of times those get eaten up. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why... We don't always correlate the albumin level. This is one of our explanations. That we don't always correlate the albumin level to the degree of proteinuria is because you don't really, you know, all we see is what's coming out in the urine. We don't know really how much is being filtered. So, for instance, you might be filtering 20 grams, catabolizing 15 of them and only having five in the urine. And the other person might be filtering 15 grams and excreting 12 in the urine. So, we, you know, I don't know if that's the case, but I think it's a, you know, it's a big factor when you're starting looking at the discrepancy of the serum albumin and uh, the amount of proteinuria that that may be what's going on. Path Logically, it's one of the neater things to see, all those protein reabsorption droplets, but they're they're pretty much going to get eaten up and, and catabolized. One other thing on these lists, he lists the three, these are the three categories, maintenance of extracellular environment, hormone secretion, and then catabolism of protein slash gluconeogenesis. And that was it. Where's blood pressure? Doesn't that feel like that should be on there? Isn't like Guyton rolling over in his grave? Don't you think blood pressure is part of um, maintenance of the internal milieu because that's a sort of total sodium content. I think you can argue it's a function of electrolytes plus homeostasis. I mean, hormones plus electrolytes. It kind of feels like an emergent quality. Like it's, you know, you got angiotensin, you've got your renin, and you've got your regulation of sodium. It does, it feels like it kind of crosses over both those categories. I, 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 I was surprised that I didn't see it. That's an interesting point because, I mean, you know, it might cause, it may be related hypertension, but the kidney didn't evolve for hypertension. Hypertension exactly. is a... Is a is a mistake somewhere. It has to do with, I don't know exactly, but some, a lot, it's something about, I believe, our excessive ability to have sodium and, and maybe other things. But I don't think the kidney was there to create hypertension. The kidney was really created there to get us out of the oceans. And so it's extremely good at saving sodium, but I don't think it's there for to cause hypertension. You know, that that's not its role. It may be, it may be play a role in it, but that's, it may it may play a role, but it wasn't developed for that. That's not one of its You, you don't think that the regulation of, of blood pressure is kind of a central role of the kidney? So you put it that way, I absolutely agree. Yeah. I think that's a self-fulfilling role, though. I don't think, I think that's a self-preservation role on the part of the kidney, don't you think? Tell, tell me I don't more, think it's, Anna. Don't you think that the kidney has a vested interest in maintaining appropriate perfusion pressure and that it's not necessarily its function, but it's a, because it's such a sensitive organ that that it's it's more of a, 
it's like I feed myself. My function in life isn't to feed myself, but it's something I do because I have to do it to exist. Don't you think? I absolutely agree. I think the kidney is a very selfish organ. And, uh, you know, I think that it is driven to, to perfuse itself. And that's, that's the basis for uh, fluid overload to the point of pulmonary edema in congestive heart failure. Right? That's my theory. And, and I think that's partially why uh, you'll develop hyponatremia um, because uh, ADH is so strong. You know, there's no, there's, there's no um, osmotic stimulus for ADH, but there's a volume stimulus for ADH. And I think the body would rather have anything the kidney would rather have any composition uh, to give up uh, per, to not give up perfusion. So I think that's kind of what you're saying. It's it's very uh, egocentric and very selfish. <laughs> I don't know. I yeah. Well, the way I think about it, and I'm going back now, way evolutionarily to caveman days, where we have most of our the problems when the life expectancy was 20, 30 was hypotension or infection, sepsis, and so I think that this is it was like like you guys already alluded to, it was really a like a self protection mechanism, and now the reason why we see hypertension is because there's just salt and overloaded in many other ways that in our diet, the way that our diet has evolved now, which we eat all the time before, maybe we didn't eat every day. And so I think that it's, it was a adaptive mechanism that now is maladaptive because we have changed. That's a good point. I think for, for thousands of years, we didn't have extra sodium. There was this whole sodium trade across Europe. It was a, you know, it was a big deal. Sodium, you didn't just go to your table and salt your food. Now we have all these mechanisms to to hold sodium, to maintain volume, and kind of nothing to get you know getting back to what Roger said earlier, kind of nothing to get rid of excess. I mean, just ANP, which is kind of weak. So I guess that is true. If you if you're walking around um, just hunting and gathering, there is no salt to be found, and so it's to your benefit to hold on to everything that you can find. But it, I mean, really, it's funny because I remember in med school and biochem, we talked so much about fed state and fasted state, and so much of what I see—I mean, I never see fasted state. I see fed state <laughs> and overfed state, and I don't—I don't think we've. And it makes you wonder, doesn't it, in a thousand years where, because what will we have evolved to, you know, will people whose colons or kidneys or whatever start to excrete tons of glucose, will those people thrive? Will that become an evolutionarily advantageous trait? I don't know. It's just interesting because the people who thrive now are the people who hold on to salt. And I think soon that's going to become... No, hypertension doesn't kill you too long after your childbearing years. That's... Yeah. Right? <laughs> that's the lucky thing. Right? So you're able to <laughs> pass that, that trait that of sodium thing? retention on. Oh, yeah. That works out real well for evolution. Yeah, because we never see hypertensive pregnant people. I don't think it's because they're eating too much salt. Yeah, that's <laughs> Okay. Uh, after, uh, the function of the, it, uh, goes through the, uh, I'm sorry that, uh, it gives the renal morphology. And I, uh, my favorite part about Burton Rose is he says there's a renal artery and then he gets right to the nephron. He don't spend any time <laughs> breaking down those vessels into the thing. He's like, it don't matter. It's just renal artery and afferent arterial. <laughs> yeah. But I think the vessels are actually one of the most fascinating parts of the kidney and anatomically speaking. I mean, it took me a while as a medical student to figure out that the efferent arterial that comes out of the glomerular tuft goes alone and becomes a peritubular capillary. 
you know, it's just not intuitive. You would think that you have different ramifications coming to feed the tissue or drain the veins. And it, that was, it's a very unique. I, I don't know if it's, uh, is there any organ that resembles that? Uh, perhaps the eye, uh, the retina has some sort of uh, anatomy that is closed, but I think it's a very unique aspect of the uh, vascular anatomy of the kidney. And it's extremely important. It's extremely important because that relationship of that vessel that's leaving the glomerulus following the proximal tubule has a major impact on, on passive reabsorption in the proximal tubule. We'll probably get into that later, but it's, it's an incredible thing. And I think I learned once that having a resistance vessel before and after the a capillary bed is only found in the glomerulus and I don't know, the testicle or something? I think I read somewhere there's one other place, yeah. epididymis or something, and I, that may be wrong, but it's 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 very unique, obviously, and it has a very specific function. Right. So I just want to I want to make sure that the listeners understand exactly what Roger's saying is that in every other capillary bed in the body, you have um, a, a precapillary sphincter which regulates perfusion to that capillary bed, but there's nothing on the venous end at all. And in the glomerulus, you have a tight control over, you, have, you can constrict the afferent arterial fluid going into the capillary bed of the glomerulus, and you can constrict the efferent arterial, which is the uh, uh, fluid flow, flowing out of the glomerulus that wasn't filtered uh, down the glomerular drain. And that is uh, <laughs> a unique area, apparently, except for the testes, right? So, Yeah, yeah the two but smartest I, organs I in the body. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. But... I agree with you, uh, Juan Carlos, because it's like why the the vessels not um, emphasize when, and I have found that like at least for students, this is one of the areas of most confusion, and it's always that because pharmacologically this is where we treat hypertension, right? And so that's always going to like, is it the afferent? Is the efferent? And and then going back to uh, you know renal blood flow and perfusion pressure. So it, it's so important. Well, and whoever made that one letter apart. That was a big mistake. Those words should yeah. be a lot more different than afferent and efferent. Agreed, yeah. But at least they're alphabetical. Big <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> That's very handy. It is helpful. And then nuclear medicine uh, tests are not very popular these days, but every now and then you get a MAC3 scan or you get a DTPTA scan to measure renal blood flow and and GFR and it is extremely helpful to draw the vascular anatomy of the glomerular tuft coming into a peritubular capillary to explain, fellows, why MAC3 measures this and why DTPA measures that. You really have to understand the vascular anatomy. Rose gives it short shift, but we think it's pretty important. And then he kind of, after the vasculature, there, you know, they also, there's no definition of, of a nephron. Right. I kind of was looking for what's the, what's your simple definition of a nephron? I remember being taught it's the functional unit of the kidney. I was like, that'd be helpful. What's a functional unit? Right. <laughs> right. It's uh, but it, you know, essentially a nephron is if you were to parse down a kidney to the smallest part where you could recognize all the functions that the kidney does, a nephron does that. A single nephron represents all the functions of uh, at least the filtration unit of the kidney, does the uh, the filtration, the secretion, the reabsorption, and the generation of urine. And anything smaller than a nephron wouldn't have all those functions. Not to fangirl on the kidney too much here, but I feel like that's pretty unique. I And also not to say pretty unique, because something can only be unique. But I think that is interesting. I mean, I can't think of the heart. I mean, what, what a cardiomyocyte, what a neuron, they don't do 
I mean, I can't think of any other organ that is organized that way that has a functional unit that is not the whole. I mean, really, the definition of the definition of an organ is a bunch of cells that are or or tissues that are grouped together to perform a function, right? And technically, the nephron is the organ, right? I didn't really haven't thought about it that way, but to think about a single unit that does so many different things, you know, and they do it almost independently. You've got you know your countercurrent system doing one thing and pumps doing something else and afferent and efferent arterial regulating filtration for it's really an it's really an incredible little unit there when you think about how about it. the chief cell as the functional unit of the parathyroid gland but it does it, everything that the parathyroid gland has to do right it can detect but doesn't the gland calcium have level and can release pth but the cell itself can't release it into circulation can it yeah i don't think there's anything i, th- I think it comes right I, I, you know what i don't know but i'm, I'm sure there's some sure. kind of regulation one cell well maybe i don't know That'll be my homework for next time. The kidney stands alone with a functional <laughs> unit. <laughs> okay. So he uh, introduces then the cortex and medulla. Uh, the defining characteristic of the cortex is that it's where the glomeruli live. There's a inner cortex and a outer cortex. The differentiation there is just the length of the loop of Henle. Is that, did, I, did I get that right? That if you're in the inner cortex, you have the long loops. And if you're in the outer cortex... You can get either medium or long loops. Any other differentiations there? And why is that a distinction that we bother making? It's interesting because that that all kind of heralds back to, uh, you know, anatomy and histology that I don't think has a lot of, I mean, clearly the the longer, the deeper nephrons are the ones that are doing the concentration. But, you know, we've got all these different segments, the straight, convoluted, distal, pre this, pre that. It's, It's all in figure one, one. And I think... I don't think it helps to have too many segments, to be honest. I think that it's better if we, it personally, I think it's better to discuss it as the proximal, what does the proximal tubule do? What does the loop of Henle do? What does the distal tubule do? What does the collecting duct do? And not break it down into three subsets of each. But that's kind of an old an old school way to look at it. But no, I think it comes from us a time when the tools that we had to recognize how the kidney worked were much more simple and we had less understanding. And so we really focused on, well, what are the light microscopic differences of all these different pieces of tissue and use that to build up how we understand it. And now that we have pretty solid understanding of how these parts work, a lot of those subtle differences are have fallen apart and are, or is le- are less important for understanding. That's exactly the I reason. agree. The only thing I would add is that the caliber of the afferent and efferent arterioles vary a little bit based on the location in the cortex versus getting closer to the medulla. And that may explain why, you know, some of the some of the nephrons are more susceptible to low blood pressure or other circumstances and why sometimes, you know, we like to think of everything as sort of pre-renal, renal, but not, but where is it written that every single glomerulus has the same experience uh, when the blood pressure is low and it may be that some are functioning better and doing the right thing than others. And Melanie, is the, the, the larger caliber afferent arterials, are those the deeper ones or the more superficial ones? I think the larger ones are... Um, I'm gonna. I actually have a picture of it. So what I, it probably goes in parallel to that is the size of the glomeruli. The juxta glomerular, juxta medullary glomeruli are larger, and so I assume Melanie that the, the arterioles are also larger. They get more pressure. You made a point about the hypotension, and I've also seen it uh, during some experimental work uh, infusing angiotensin two to a to a rat or a mouse. You see the lesions affecting the juxta uh, uh, medullary glomeruli, and the vessels get damaged, 
And I, and I remember reading somewhere some sort of philosophical thing that those glomerula are there to kind of hold on the pressure and protect the rest of the cortex uh, from the uh, hypertensive stress. But saying long versus short is kind of arbitrary, though, in terms of like, is there a cutoff? What's long, one's short? I was talking about the radius of the vessels, not the loops of Henley. Yeah, I think the, the long versus short is really helpful in terms of determining the ability to concentrate at the end of the day. The deeper you go, the more you can concentrate. And this was kind of something cool, I thought. Depending on the organism that you are, you get a higher rate of long nephron segments or, or long loops. Um, so like kangaroo rats and other things that live in the desert are all long loop animals. Whereas things like us that live in more temperate areas are a mix of maybe 50, 50 or 30, 60, or I forget what the breakdown was. Um, but if you're really having to concentrate urine to those 2,400, 3,000 milliosms per liter ranges, you really need more of those long loops and more of those juxtaglomerular uh, glomeruli, sorry, juxtamedullary glomeruli. So I think we're going to get our opportunities to talk a lot more about this when we get to the loop of Henley. Uh, he then goes through, he talks about the, the proximal tubule. And, you know, in, you know, when I teach this to medical students, I was like, you need to have kind of big picture what these different areas do. And the proximal tubule is like big, dumb reabsorption. We get this massive filtration of the glomerulus, and then we need to pull back, you know, two thirds of it just to deal with the bulk of this fluid that's being reabsorbed. You have the loop of Henle. This is the engine of the kidney that is going to drive both concentration and reabsorption. Then you have distal convoluted tubule and distal nephron doing the fine tuning of the, of the urine, making the lot of the final steps to make sure that uh, urinary excretion of electrolytes is matches uh, dietary intake of electrolytes to keep people in balance. I think it's really important what, what Joel is saying because, you know, what you have to realize about the kidney is it's it's a filtration organ. It's a convection organ. And it has to process an awful lot of fluid to get out some of the toxins because the volume has to be a lot. And so it's kind of unique that you have to filter 140 liters a day just to get rid of your daily urea. You can get rid of it at any at any amount of filter. The, 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 the essence of clearance is that you once you're in steady state, you'll get rid of your daily production of anything, but to but to get it to get rid of your daily production of something and keep it at a low level that provides health, you have to filter a lot of it. So, so that's really what the proximal tubule is about: is to make up for the inefficiency of this organ. I mean, it would be much smarter if it were all secretory like the liver, um, but it's not. It's a filtration organ. It, it filters, you know, it's what twenty percent of the cardiac output. These two little two little fist-sized organs. It gets 20% of the cardiac output and has to filter all this. And so it has to reabsorb, which is a lot of fluid it has to do. So the proximal tubule really is there as this kind of machine and somewhat the 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 collect uh, the, uh, loop too, but this machine to basically reabsorb all the stuff that you didn't want to have to filter in the first place to get to the bad stuff. And so as a result, you know, it uses a lot of energy. It's got... Uh, uh, microvilli, you know, uh, it has to have a huge surface area, which you don't see in the distal tubule because it's it's got all this stuff it has to do. And it, it's kind of an interesting, it's the one criticism I might have of the kidney is it's not very efficient. Uh, it has to do a lot of work to make up for the fact that it's a filtration organ. But do you think it would have to do more work to actually secrete all of the waste products? Like maybe this way is actually the more efficient way of that rather than secreting every all the waste products? It's a really good question. I have no idea. You know, it's probably a, 
a very sophisticated ATP equation. But, but the you know we we do this experiment all the time when we do dialysis. So when we do CRRT continuous uh, renal replacement therapy with the uh, with uh, hemofiltration, that's more like the kidney, right? And that's super efficient for getting rid of things at high concentrations like sodium. But we know that it's not great for getting rid of things at low concentrations like potassium. And this is, you know, drilled into our fellows all the time that, you know, if you have hyperkalemia, you're going to do a lot better with dialysis, which is which is something that the kidney doesn't do. So if the kidney were to create, if you know, somebody were to create a, a different system that used dialysis where you had diffusion as the way that we cleared toxins, it would be much better for getting rid of these toxins at lower lower concentrations than we have with filtration. And as a consequence of this inefficiency, we compensate for it with this massive, right? Like, a, you know, we only, you only have three liters of plasma and we're filtering three liters of plasma every 30 minutes. You know, Joel's point about, you know, dialysis being diffusive, but really the glomerulus is convective. It's, it's important because if you're a believer in hemofiltration and you believe in middle molecules and some of those other things, then dialysis itself isn't really, it does not mimic the kidney. Hemofiltration mimics the kidney because it's a convective, the, the glomerulus is a convective organ. When I was in um, PATH as a med student, one of the things my professor, Tom Davis, is, said um, when he was first describing the nephron, he said that some people think about the kidney as a filter and we describe it to patients as a filter, like you have a pot of water and the toxins are pasta and, you know, the the water is blood. And, and you basically, you if you wanted to get the pasta out, you would just put it through a strainer. He's like, but actually what you do is you take the whole pot of water and pasta and you dump the whole thing out in your backyard and then you take tweezers and you pick up each little piece of pasta and I thought that was great. And I always think about that. That's the only thing I remember from Pat. No. But, but I thought great. that was really That's apropos. When I was reading this segment, I thought of him. So the, the other interesting thing is it's proximal tubule was kind of the ignored part of the nephron for a long period of time. Everybody was focused on the loop and the distal nephron. And now with SGLT2 inhibitors and new appreciation for acetazolamide and some of its pretty impressive ability to induce diuresis and heart failure and cure patients of nephrogenic diabetes, not cure patients of nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, but treat pretty compellingly nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. I think we're beginning to reappreciate the proximal tubules, kind of interesting reawakening. And also with uh, some of the new nephrotoxins we have, we're seeing diseases we didn't, you know, I didn't see as a fellow. We never saw all Fanconi's and all these versions of uh, of proximal tubular defects, but with, you know, with the chemotherapies we're giving now, we're seeing it all, and HIV-related drugs, et cetera. We're, we're actually seeing that what the proximal tubule, how important it is, because when it gets when it gets screwed up, it, it can really mess up uh, your milieu, you know. You take it for granted that it's absorbing all this stuff. It's a lot of stuff it has to reabsorb. Yeah, and that's and that's shown in a Table 1-1. You filter 180 liters of water, and you reabsorb 98 to 99% of it. And it's 99% for sodium, for chloride. Bicarb, my favorite. You filter 4,800 millicolvents of bicarb, you excrete none. 100% absorption. And then uh, potassium uh, has a great footnote, right? You filter 800 and you excrete 40 to 120, which is 85 to 95%. And then the footnote says, but it's really not like that. It's way more complex. You reabsorb all of it, then you secrete some of it. We'll get to that on potassium in a later chapter. And then the urea is the other interesting. Here's a toxin and we only, that one, we only excrete 50% of it. Or we only, excuse me, we, only, we reabsorb 50% of it. Uh, so we guess we also excrete only 50% of it. I guess ideally that would be higher. And then he goes into the uh, the role of the tight junction. Uh, and we, we gave a homework assignment to Josh. Josh was going to do a deep dive into the tight into the tight junction. So uh, why, why do we need to know about tight junctions, Josh? 
For sure. So I think for all the love we give to ion channels and other transcellular processes, it's really paracellular transport of fluid through tight junctions that does the work of reabsorbing salt and water here in the proximal tubule. Tight junctions are ways that two opposing cells can get really close together and stay there so they can create a barrier. It creates an inside-the-cell lumen and an outside-the-cell interstitium, but it also creates two domains of the membrane, an apical lumen-facing side and a basolateral interstitium-facing side. Talk a lot about what transporters are in the apical surface and which transporters are in the basolateral surface because they really localize preferentially to one side. And rather than spend time on those transporters and how they localize there, I think we're going to spend a lot of time on those as we get through the chapters. I really wanted to focus on the junction itself and how it works. I hadn't realized how mysterious tight junctions were when I started reading about this. And I told you guys, but the rest of our listeners, all five of them, um, aren't going to know that one of these reviews that we'll put probably in the show notes calls them the most enigmatic of adhesion complexes. And there's still a lot we don't know about how tight junctions work. Um, We do know that each of the two cells that are involved in forming a tight junction Each of them expresses a transmembrane protein called a claudin, and the extracellular domains of those claudin proteins fit together like the teeth of a zipper. Um, A tight junction between two cells is made up of multiple claudin zippers, and the more zippers that are present, the tighter the junction formed between those two cells. Yeah, so Rose talks about that. He talks about how the tight junctions in the proximal tubular are super loose, and you can only get down to a urine pH or tubular fluid pH of like 6.8, but if you go to the distal, the collecting duct, you can get down to a urine pH of uh, 4.5, a thousandfold concentration. So I thought it was really interesting that different epithelia have different tight junctions with different levels of tightness. So the really tight epithelia, things like the distal uh, tubule, things like the, the tightest of tight junctions happens actually in the frog bladder, in case you were curious. Those, <laughs> tightest of tight those junctions. epithelia are 50,000 times tighter than the proximal tubule, which is the leakiest of tight junctions. How are they Um, measuring this tightness? So that's with a resistance. You measure like a trans epithelial (laughs) resistance. You just like, you you (laughs) pull it a little little bit. bit. (laughs) No, it's, it's, it's an electrical measurement and it's 50,000 times tighter inside of a frog's bladder, outside the frog's bladder, poor frog. Um, than inside the tubule versus outside the proximal tubule. Well, that's what so the these expression, are really you know, it's tighter than a, t- a frog's bladder. I, mean, I said it all the expressions all the time, right? That's, hey, that's screw that it. It's tighter than a frog's test. bladder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're bringing it. I do think that's interesting, though, because I remember being taught, you know, there's tight junctions, there's adherence junctions, and there's cell-cell junctions. I don't remember being taught, like, oh, by the way, asterisk. A tight, I mean, I guess you do, but like tight junctions and, you know, certain organ systems are, are what's more important for, you know, your CNS to be really tight. But I think tight is kind of a, a vulgar term for what it actually is, right? Occlusive. I, I think it, it <laughs> helps keep two things separate, but I think the leakiness is also an important property of it. And here in the proximal, when we talk about the proximal tubule, we see how leakiness is really important. And we get to distal tubule, we see how tightness is really important. I think this is That's the key. probably something we're going to see throughout the book and throughout learning about some of these topics. There are things that textbooks are really great for, um, like fundamental physiology concepts that we feel are really important to build an understanding on. And then things like fast evolving biological concepts are really hard to build a textbook on because that understanding is going to change over the 20 years between editions of your textbook. 
Um, so there's a lot of really cool stuff about tight junctions that we could deep dive into. There's a little bit I want to dive into, um, but I think it's hard to build a cutting edge understanding of tight junctions into a fundamental physiology textbook just by the nature of, of that document. It was great, Josh. Uh, I think it's also important. Clinically, we don't think about tight junctions much. Uh, you know, certainly not in the proximal tubule. We see it as paracellular transport. It's something that just happens passively. But it we'll probably get to that later on in the, in the corresponding chapter. But the tight junction clotting 16, it's a mutation in that uh, protein leads to a clinical disorder, familial hypomagnesemia, hypercalceric nephrocalcinosis. Very rare, but probably you're going to see it more often in a test than in your clinical practice. It's uh, an interesting example of how a tight junction becomes a clinically relevant. Hey, JC, can, can you hold? Can you hold on for a second? Can you go back to that to the hypomagnesemia? Can you talk about the? Oh, oh, Josh, yeah, Josh, 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 Josh. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah, I'm sorry. really excited about this yeah, one. Go for it. I'm sorry, Josh. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. It's a really great <laughs> point. It's a really interesting disorder. And it's not cool for the five people who have it, but it's really informative for the rest they of are us. Also, our listeners. I was going <laughs> to say are, five people. I, know. I was going to say. Um, but I think it, it really gets at the leakiness of tight junctions, and I think those are the that's really the place I wanted to spend a little bit more time on tight junctions here. There are actually two ways that tight junctions are leaky, uh, and I think we can post a link to a figure that illustrates this really nicely. Tight junctions have both pores and have leaks that are more macroscopic. So with the pores, just like individual particles of sand can get it between the teeth of a really coarse tooth zipper, really small molecules like single ions can get through the pores formed by these clawed-in teeth of a tight junction. Um, some of the clawed-in clawed -in junctions allow for more pore permeability and some allow for less. And some are really cation selective and some are anion selective. So the clawed-in 16 or paracelin one that JC was talking about, that is a cation selective, particularly magnesium selective clodin clodin junction that it forms. And so if you don't have clodin 16 because of a genetic mutation, you make tight junctions that don't allow for normal magnesium reabsorption. As a result, magnesium remains in the tubule and gets wasted into the urine, resulting in hypomagnesemia. I always think of magnesium reabsorption mainly loop of Henle, or is that is that where this is? It's, this is more loop of Henle. That's right. This is what uh, it's uh, involved in your paracellular transport of calcium and magnesium. So that's my question: Do they also waste Henle. calcium? Same disease. They, yeah. Calcium remains in the tubule, and they get nephrocalcinosis from sustained high calcium inside the tubule. Yeah. So there's like yeah. a really classic uh, Rick Lifton paper here from 1999 we can link to also. It's beautiful. Yeah, they are hypercalceric, correct. Excellent. You'd think there'd be more mutations, you know, and more defects. Unless uh, they're lethal. It's such an important. I mean, so this is one of those reasons we keep needing kidney genetics clinics, even though it doesn't. it's not a high throughput uh, clinic for a lot of us. I, I think it really does help us find mechanisms of disease and help us lead to better understanding of this physiology. But there are others, Roger. They are the clotting, they have in cases extremely rare that have the whole clinical presentation of clotting 16 and yet a mutation is another clotting, like clotting, clotting 19, 19 clotting yeah. 14, et cetera. Those are just super rare situations. The other leakiness mechanism, we talked about the pores that allow for single ions to go through. Um, the other way that these clotins work is you can actually get leaks through opening and closing of the clotin zippers. So a tight junction can unzip, allow cargoes in from the lumen side, and then rezip 
to close behind. And through sequential opening and closing of those zippers, you create almost like locks in a canal. And so you get flow of larger molecules from one side of an epithelia to the other side of an epithelia. And my guess, although there's still, this is one of those areas we don't really know as much about, is that how many zippers you have and how frequently they open and close are going to be a big determinant of how much transit you get across an epithelia. Is, are so, we moving ions this way or is this bigger molecules? So these are bigger molecules. They can, these can be huge molecules that fit in between the space between two cells. So non-pathologically, that's the way they make This is totally normal. Yeah. And, and in the kidney, do you, you have an example of how this works in the kidney? I don't have a particular example for kidney here, although I bet there are a bunch of really good ones. Melanie, do you have something on your mind for this one? I was no, just you're thinking just this one. is like the secret life of the Claudin zipper. <laughs> but but I think we've talked about some things where uh, you wonder about- do that. There's no way a toad bladder- bladders don't do that. <laughs> They're way more boring than this. And you wonder if there's some algorithm reabsorption through Very different animals. I don't know. Yeah, toads are dry. Thank you. Yeah, uh, but one of the big points of the, in the burnt rose thing was talking about the polarity of the cells, and you had touched upon that. And I just this was something that my fellows were kind of wide eyed when I was describing it to them. We talk about all these channels, and we don't think about they're put into this lipid bilayer, which is largely these proteins float around in this lipid bilayer, and it is absolutely essential for their function that they're on the right side of these tight junctions, that you know that your ENAC channel is on the tubular side and is not on the basolateral side. I think it is important that it's in the right place. I'm not sure if it's the Claudins and tight junctions themselves that, that determine that. the location. It's a really, it, it makes sense that they would be like a barrier to, to trafficking in the wrong direction, and that may be part of their function. But I think there are other things like the lipid composition of the apical versus basolateral membrane that may differ. There's different cytoskeletal binding partners for each of these in the different membranes. I think those over the intervening 20 years since the book was published have been shown to play more of a role in where those individual uh, transporters are, are located to. Uh, Joel, I, you know, when you mentioned that you had, uh, you explained to your trainees and they had a reaction. Well, now I got to go tomorrow had... and tell them I'm totally wrong. It's going to be very embarrassing. <laughs> no, it's, it's going to be humili- humiliating for me. Not totally wrong. Yeah, that's right. But I, be, they'll remember it. Yeah. They remember when Toph told them was completely wrong about the <laughs> They'll only know if they listen to the podcast. Yeah. You got to, you know, what I have, I've asked openly, what do you think a cell polarity is in the kidney? They tend to link it with charge, you know, polar, uh, and it's, and it's not very intuitive, but it's absolutely uh, critical for the function of the, of the tubules as you described. And in particular, what I was going to mention earlier is that I I see it important, uh, and it's just my, my interpretation, not sure it's, it's precise, but when you look at the collecting that, the intercalated A, intercalated B cells, are a mirror image of each other. And it's pretty clear that it's just regulation of cell polarity what determines what cell becomes A or B. Can we, but that's such a great point, JC. Can we just rewind and make okay. sure? So <laughs> what? So uh, we're talking about distal nephron, two cell types, or uh, the cortical collecting duct, two cell types. There's principal cells and intercalated cells. Principal cells are handling potassium secretion. Intercalated cells, in most cases, are secreting acid into the tubule. That's your alpha intercalated there's a beta or B type intercalated cells, which is secreting bicarbonate. It's awesome that their A secretes acid and B secretes base or bicarb. Thank God for that. It's the first time nephrology has been your friend. When you actually kind of look at the molecular mechanics, 
that the difference between an alpha intercalated cells and a beta intercalated cells is just the polarity is reversed. Is that in an alpha cell, you have the hydrogen being secreted into the tubule. And when it turns into a beta cell, it kind of turns itself inside out. And now the acid is being, hydrogen is being secreted into the basal lateral membrane. It is such an interesting aspect of polarity. I love it. Yes. And, and the other interesting aspect in the proximal tubule, yet we, we, we mentioned that it, the tight junctions are leaky and not as strong. But if we think about ATN, to me, it's a yes. great example. And the chapter talks about it, talks about the sodium potassium ATPase uh, pumping sodium uh, in the wrong direction. Uh, and it's just, it's fantastic because uh, when you understand uh, fractional excretion of sodium of, of uh, 10% in a patient with massive tubular injury, it does make sense to me, at least. This is uh, the work of Bruce Molitoris. Is this, this is the guy who kind of led the, led the charge here. Is that, do I got that right? Correct. Yeah. And Anna's being very quiet. Oh, no, please go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I agree. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I'm not trying to lose my job, no. And the, and the idea here is that one of the problems with acute tubular necrosis in this acute kidney injury model is that these cells lose polarity. And so what would normally be massive reabsorption of sodium gets flipped around and you have secretion of sodium and this is not, this is not a good situation. Then there's a small section on membrane recycling a bit about endocytosis and clathrin-coated pits. I didn't find any of it too helpful or too interesting in the section. And then he talks about the composition of the urine. And, you know, to me, you know, this is the the important point that, you know, I, I want people to come away with is, you know, how many times do medical students ask, what's the normal urine sodium? What's the normal urine pH? And you're like, no, 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 you're so trained by these normal values in the blood. You think that that's how all fluids are. And the reality is that they're all, the only reason there are normal values for the blood is there are no normal values for the urine, that the vast variety in the urine allows you to maintain a constant uh, extracellular uh, environment. I thought Rose did a nice job of making that point. This is one of my favorite things when uh, when lecturing with the students said, and when, especially when you have someone with AKI, other than seeing the delta creatinine, uh, the next most important thing to look at for diagnosis is the composition of the urine. This is what's going to tell you things like, you know, what are the casts? We always look at the urine together. What are the casts? What is specific gravity? What are the uh, the electrolytes that you're seeing in the urine? So I just like, I don't know. It's just like one of my favorite things. <laughs> it's a little bizarre. It's not, it's not bizarre at all. It's <laughs> cool. We're not your friends here. This is normal. <laughs> you're kind of a nerd, Letty. <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah, but I think to that point, I mean, I've definitely had medical students say, okay, so if the urine sodium is low, then it's always this type of hyponatremia. And it's like, well, that's not really the case. You have to think about it clinically and like, is the kidney doing what's appropriate? Are they holding on to sodium when they should be? So I think that it's a really important point to make, essentially. This is something endocrinologists have known forever, right? They always teach that it's inappropriately low. It's not that it's low, it's that it's inappropriately low. Right, yeah. You can't interpret any urine electrolytes except for in the sense of what should be happening or what's happening to the body. 
that that frames all of that. Yeah. And 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 when I look at it and I don't understand it, I always blame myself because I always believe the kidney is smarter than me. So I always blame it on oh that urine was in the bladder from hours ago. That doesn't represent what's going on now, right? I I got a long list of ways to explain away the urine electrolytes that don't agree with my hypothesis. People frequently will check one urine. It's just like it's important to see a trend of serum values. It's really important to see trends of urine values, especially in hyponatremia, but in a lot of things. It's like, it's it's right there. Just check, check it again and see how things are changing in response to changes in the serum. So I don't see people do that very often. And then there was the broccoli part of the chapter, the part of the chapter where we had to, had to eat our vegetables. The chapter ends with a discussion of atomic weight and molarity and equivalence and osmotic pressure and osmolality. And this was really just providing us with the uh, the tools. Like we're going to be talking about concentrations of uh, different compounds for the rest of the, the book. And we're going to use a bunch of different units, right? We're going to use milligrams for deciliters for calcium and magnesium and glucose. And we're going to be using milliequivalents for sodium and potassium. And we'll be using milliosmos per kilogram for osmolarity. And he takes the time to go from first principles and does that inorganic chemistry class that you took in 10th grade or 9th grade and recreates it in a few pages at the end of the book. And to me, it's so like, this is the thing that no chapter that has a 2,500 word count on it ever spends the time talking about. No review article ever talks about because it's just, it's too fundamental and it's the kind of stuff that has to be in a textbook for you to get. Yeah. It's the kind of thing that separates us from everybody else. I mean, uh, you know, who else understands what a mole is? Who, under- who understands what the difference is? It, it's, I, I become kind of an elitist about that, you know. <laughs> and and uh, if there's a time when I try to, you know, look like a smarty pants, it's always uh, using, uh, you know, molecular weights and, and converting things and whatever. It makes a few good points, though, you know, that, for instance, phosphorus, where you can't really talk about, there's too many valences to, to do phosphorus. You know, I always have fun with the fellows and uh, ask them why, you know, two times sodium plus, you know, glucose divided by 18. And, and they may, the, the two times sodium they'll get, this is for estimating serum osmolarity, this, the two times sodium they'll get, the glucose, it takes them a while, but they never figure out why it's 2.8 for uh, blood urea nitrogen. And I work them down and I say, what's the molecular weight? You know, that we go through that the eight, the 180 is the molecular weight of glucose because it's in deciliters, it's 18. And I said, so 20, so 2.8. So that must be that the molecular weight of urea is 28, which of course it isn't. And they go, yeah. I go, no, that's not. Urea is of course 60. And uh, then it takes them a while. I said, because what are we measuring? We're not measuring urea or measuring urea nitrogen. I said, what's the molecular weight of nitrogen? And it's 14. I said, well, then what's wrong with that? Because we're not measuring N, we're measuring N2. And it's a fun exercise that I go through every time with the residents and the fellows to kind of, but it's fun, you know, and it's... uh, I know it's fun for you, Roger. I'm not so sure if it's fun for all the other people involved in that exercise. Well, when I'm done, I, I guarantee you it's fun because I'm crystal clear in my <laughs> and, explanation. And um, since we're talking about our favorites and that's your favorite, mine is the explanation of calcium. Why do we have 2.5 calcium in the in dialysate, but it's 1.25 in the blood? And so I agree. These are the things that kind of help us. Yeah. One of the things that always frustrates me is you learn about equivalence. And then you're like, well, let, what's measured in equivalence? And you're like, well, sodium is measured in equivalence. And I was like, well, that's not very helpful because it has a valence of one. So milliosms equal milliequivalence. Okay, what else is measured in equivalence? Chloride. I was like, well, same issue, valence of one. I was like, well, what about some of our divalent ions? What do we measure magnesium in? They're like, oh, milligrams per deciliter. <laughs> what about <laughs> calcium? Milligrams per deciliter. What about you know phosphate? Oh, milligrams. Like the, all the ones where it would be interesting to use equivalence, we don't. Yeah, I 
No payoff. But that's the U.S., right? Because they don't do that in Europe. Do they use Do they use equivalents for those, or do they use um, Do they use uh, uh, mil, uh, millimoles? I don't. I don't know. I think they. I, I think calcium and phosphate are both measured. May, correct me if I'm wrong. I think they're both measured outside the U.S. in millimoles instead of in um, milligrams per deciliter. What I would say, a fellow reading this chapter, is that if you really want to understand. Uh, the physiological process that involves substances, you're going to have to know what the atomic weight of oxygen is, nitrogen. And I tell my fellows, you can't memorize those numbers. Get a little Mendeleev table, put it as a marker in hemoglobin dialysis. You just have to know those two, three numbers. It's not very difficult. And that is one of the messages that I get from this chapter. They need to understand inorganic chemistry, the, the, the essence. And the other concept that is introduced in this chapter is osmolality. And again, we're going to have dedicated chapters for that, and we'll have plenty of time to to over, to uh, to discuss it. But I think the the concept that osmolality is is proportional to the number of particles uh, is is critical, so that it gets understood. And this is why the Avogadro number is introduced because there's a constant number of particles per mole. That is the important concept that when the fellows or students read this chapter need to understand. And then later on, we'll go in more detail about how osmolality is regulated. Right. Osmolality, one of the few colligative properties, a property dependent only on the number of particles in solution, not the nature of the particles. It is nice to know that that chapter is there. It's sort of like your friend if you need it as you go forward. And I know when I was a fellow reading this book, I always went back to chapter one because People who know me know that I'm really bad at math, in addition to being not very funny. <laughs> very funny. So I, I, I've got a question for the group here. And that, um, you know, the second to the last and the last page goes into this osmolarity a little bit more. And he talks about sodium chloride acts as if it's only 75%. The ionic action interactions reduce the random movement of sodium chloride so that it acts as if it were only 75% rather than 100%. So instead of sodium chloride being two, he actually makes it 1.75. This is a new concept to me. And I know, I mean, certainly clinically, that's not the case because we always multiply it times two and we treat it as as two particles. I don't quite understand what he's saying there, and, I, and I'm afraid it might be a little misleading. Yeah, there's actually a chapter later in the book, uh, Roger, that he revisits this concept. And it's very interesting because uh, there are two factors that affect it, why we come up with it two. One of them is that it depends if you take a, the measure the concentration of, of sodium or chloride in uh plasma water, whether you include the, the fat or not, uh, like uh, that would already change your your concentration. Um, so it will take you from 1.75 to about 1.85 or 88. And then it, it just happens that the osmolality uh, provided by calcium, magnesium, potassium approximates to that remaining 0.20 something that will make you two. So mathematical is a convenient uh, approximation that you just multiply by two. Guys, this has been great. This I I think we're done with this chapter unless anybody has something else that they wanted to point out or talk about. I do want to point out something because I remember when I first read his book that, that, that drove something into me and it, it drove it very early. And that is the fact, we kind of skipped over it, but 
all this that's going on is it happens because of sodium potassium ATPase and having this, you know, three sodium, two potassium, which makes sodium want to go in the cell. And so sodium wants to go in the cell and bring things with it. And then the sodium potassium ATPase takes it out again. And without that, we'd have none of this. And I think, you know, when I first read his book, he kept saying over and over again that, that that's what drives all this. This is where it all starts. And without that, we have nothing, and and I just wanted to make that make that point because uh, I don't want to gloss over that how important that is. And that none of this would happen without it. I didn't even think about that. That's a really good point. Yeah. Last year, I went to the Origins of Renal Physiology course up in Maine, and they do they have a cell model where basically you block all the different um, like the chloride transporter and things like that, and then you use Wabane to block the NAK, and and everything stops. And it, it's just a nice experimental model of just of exactly what you just said. So what you're saying is I should go eat something with a lot of readily available energy right now, like Ben and Jerry. Go to Mount Desert Island. Take that. Don't miss yeah. that opportunity. As a I've fellow. applied That's every exactly. year since undergrad. I never get it. I'm not kidding. They have a great lobster bake at the, the I know. Unfortunately, the course is. I want so but, bad. But unfortunately, Wait, Josh, the course is canceled. Oh, unfortunately, the course is canceled this year because yeah. of COVID restrictions. I was signed up to be a TA this year. I was really excited to go they up can for my do first year there. Bubble. They can do Mount well, Desert Island in a bubble. If we can all get swabbed, we can all go into Maine. But, but Anna, now you know people in, in the right place. Now you know people. That's right. <laughs> Melanie's got the hookup. Don't, and I can try, but Melanie is the hookup. So, we'll <laughs> so uh, Caitlin Vlashart tweeted today this quote from Homer Smith that says that recognizing that we have the kind of blood we have because we have the kind of kidneys that we have, we must acknowledge that our kidneys constitute the major foundation of our physiological freedom. That's so Homer Smith. It might just look like a kidney, but it represents physiologic freedom. Okay, guys, that was great. Thank you for doing this. Now, the most important step, hit the stop button on your record.